one, and that's why we drink, so I haven't listened to anything else. <laughs> I'm listening to that, too. I'm um, into about a year ago. Yeah. I, like, I well, June. the pandemic part. Yeah, I just got to June of last year. We just got past, like, the Tiger King phase, and uh, the Black Lives Matter protests are just starting. Yeah, I just to listened to the Blackout episode. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, you're right behind me. I was just listening to, now I need to know. 174. 175. Oh, I'm on 179. Ah, <laughs> oh, no way. That's awesome. Okay. Um, I actually have started recording already, so maybe I'll include that. <laughs> little shout out to them. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you about a uh, friendly Canadian serial killer. Love that. Um, from BC. Uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are with serial killers and true crime Pretty. stuff. You are? Okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to tell you about Robert Picton. Don't know that one. He's the pig farmer. Sometimes just called that way, but you'll find out. You'll find out. Okay, yeah. So I'll start by telling you about him personally, like himself. So, Robert, or Willie for short, Picton, uh, was born October 24th, 1949. His family had a big pig farm in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, which is 27 kilometers east of Vancouver. Before he was born, he had an older sister who was sent to live with a relative in Vancouver because his parents felt a pig farm was not an appropriate place to raise a, raise a girl. Which isn't significant to the story at all. I just thought it was an interesting little tidbit. Mm-hmm. Interesting thing to uh, care about. <laughs> I know. Like, we're going to have a pig farm, but it's only some of our children are... Always sh- allowed. Only. Yeah. Only Must have been uh, not a nice feeling for the kid, for the daughter, either. I'd feel more sad for the the, the boys who are stuck there. <laughs> That too, and it was not nice. Yeah, and it's not nice, which I will get into shortly. Um, Him and his brother David started working on the farm at a young age, and their mother was very demanding of them. She prioritized the pigs over her son's personal hygiene, which led to her sending them to school unwashed and in dirty clothes and stinking of pig manure, (laughs) which earned Robert the nickname Stinky Piggy. Clever. Kids are so original. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Wh- and an interesting tidbit, he was very attached to his mother, which is interesting because she seemed kind of shitty, but his father was too. His father was abusive, um, and he didn't really interact with his dad at all. Oh. He struggled in school, and he failed several grades and was put into special ed classes. And him and his brother David often skipped school and hid from their parents at home when their parents would be out at work. Um, In his early teens, he used some money he'd saved up to buy a calf to keep as a pet, which I think is just such, like, a country bumpkin thing to do. Like, I want a pet. I thought you were going to say cat. No. (laughs) No, it was a calf, like a baby cow. 
that's such a country bumpkin thing to do to have a cow as a pet. Yeah. Like I had a friend in elementary school who wanted pigs as pets. Wow. Well, they would have fit in really well in this um story. Yeah. Well. Um. So one day he came home from school and he couldn't find his pet cow. So his mother was like, oh, go check the barn. And there he found the cow slaughtered. Uh. Oh, in 1963, at age 14, he dropped out of school and became a butcher's apprentice. In 1970, he left his apprenticeship to work full-time on the family farm. And in 1978... Both his parents died and left the farm to the three kids. Linda, who's the sister that didn't even grow up there, didn't care about it at all, which, I mean, why would she? David, his brother, claimed the family home. And Robert started living on a trailer on a remote part of the property and taking care of the farm. Um, David helped too, but Robert was mostly mainly in charge of it. The property was 17 acre was 17 acres with seven buildings and 54 vehicles on it which is interesting like I'm not sure totally what it means by vehicles like if it means farm vehicles as well or if it's just a bunch of random trucks and cars I was going to say if anything the uh, sister could grab that and sell them all and benefit from that instead of the rest of the farm Yeah really so the brothers quickly began neglecting the farming operation. Um, so the farm just kind of went to shit. And they actually registered the property as a non-profit charity with the Canadian government in 1996. They claimed to, quote, organize, coordinate, manage, and operate special events, functions, dances, shows, and exhibitions on behalf of service organizations sports organizations, and other worthy groups, end quote. For the cows and the pigs, of course. But they were actually hosting raves. And For the cows and the pigs, of course. Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, these parties were often attended by local sex workers from Vancouver and shady characters from the red light district of Vancouver. And it's believed these parties are how he met some of his victims. Oh. Because they attracted up to 2,000 guests. Jesus. And members of the Hell's Angels were known to frequent the farm. They had an employee named Bill Hiscock, and he called the farm a, quote, creepy-looking place, end quote, and described Picton as a quiet man whose occasional bizarre behavior would draw attention. And he worked for them for about three years, and over the three years he started to notice that women would often visit, they'd come, but they'd never leave. And he'd never see them again. Oh. So... Was he attractive, or was he, like, I know you said he acts weird, but does he look weird? Oh, honey, let me show you him. Hold on he is not cute I kind of 
figured, but at the same time, people like Ted Bundy, they tend to attract females or whatever. Yes. Yes. Um, let me send you a picture of him. Like, I find him terrifying looking because I know what he did, but he's kind of just, in some photos, like, I sent you a photo on Snapchat, but in some photos, he's just kind of looks like an average dude. Kind of creepy looking, but he kind of just looks like... Oh, no, he's horrifying looking. But, like, okay, I yeah. don't even know what he's done yet, and I think he looks terrifying. <laughs> he, yeah. I was just going to say, he looks like just like oh an average in... I know, that picture's with a dead pic. There's, those are the only two pictures online. Um, where was it? Okay. So now, we'll get into his crimes. Caution to viewers, don't Google this guy. <laughs> it's not, he's not that horrifying looking. It's the pig in the background. It's, at least it's not as bad as when you Google um, John Wayne Gacy and you get pictures of him as a clown. Or the guy who made nipple belts. Yeah. Oof. Ed Gein. Yeah, Ed Gein. I will... Talk about him eventually. Mm. But right now I'm doing a series of Canadian stories, and this is obviously one of them. Okay, so, um, it's, I'm not going to say how many victims yet, we'll get there, but um, it is believed that about half of his victims were Indigenous women, and many were also sex workers, some were homeless, some were drug addicts. So, unfortunately, I'm obviously not saying this is fair in any way, but those four things kind of, well, not kind of, they truly do, yes, and they contribute to why his, it lasted so long, why he got away with this for so long. Okay. March 1997, he hired sex worker Wendy Lynn... Eistetter, and he brought her back to his place, and after they had sex, he handcuffed her. Now, I don't know, that could have been part of it, I'm not 100% clear on that. I'm not sure, like, if that was part of what they were doing, but um, when he handcuffed her, she he stabbed her, but she managed to get the knife from him and actually stabbed him back in his neck. And they both went to local hospitals. They both survived. She almost died. And he was charged with attempted murder on March 23rd. But unfortunately, the charge was dismissed January 27th, 1998. So the following January. And unfortunately, the reasoning used for the dismissal was because she was a sex worker and a drug addict. She was believed to be too unstable for her testimony to help a secure conviction. Oh, whatever. It's really sad. It It is true. Oh. Juries, and, like, I'm not saying they're not believable, but a lot of the time juries have a harder time believing them because it's also something the defense will also really play up. Mm-hmm. So it's harder for, to convince juries, and that's not necessarily saying, like, the prosecution thought poorly of her. It's just, unfortunately, these circumstances 
often lead to a jury not believing a witness. In 1998, the Picton brothers were sued by Port Coquitlam officials for violating zoning ordinances. So, this basically means not using the property as what it is, um, and for neglecting the agriculture for which the property had been zoned. So it was supposed to be used as a farm, they were supposed to treat it well as a farm, and they were not. And also for, quote, for having, quote, altered a large farm building on the land for the purpose of holding dances, concerts, and recreations, end quote. And they decided to ignore that and have a big New Year's Eve party. Oh, joy. And because of that party, they, well, because of ignoring authorities and having the party, they faced an injunction which banned all future par- parties and the meant the police were, quote, authorized to arrest and remove any person at future events on the property. So no one would even want to go. Yeah, basically. And if they heard about it, they'd just show up and arrest everyone. Oh, boy. And... That's bad for business. Well, I was trying to find um, the name they had registered it as a non-profit organization under, and I believe I read somewhere that it was called something like Piggy Palace. So they lost their non-profit status... In either 1999 or 2000, I'm not sure which one, for inability to procure financial statements. Uh, Yeah. So basically, they couldn't prove that they were actually doing any good. Because they weren't. (laughs) Yep. That makes sense. So this is where shit starts getting real interesting. So in 1999, police received a tip that Picton had a freezer full of human flesh. He was interviewed and denied it, and police actually got his consent to search the farm. So guess what they did? They searched the farm? No. They just didn't. Oh... Yeah. And who said, who was that? <laughs> I don't know. So, to dispose of the bodies, it's pretty nasty. I'll give you that warning. So, because he had a pig farm, he had the means to slaughter the pigs as well, because he'd also been a butcher's apprentice, and it's cheaper to do it yourself. So, he would cut up the bodies using those same tools, and he fed some bones, flesh, and internal organs to his pigs, which were later sold for human consumption. And that's not even the grossest part. Some of the victim's flesh was ground into mints and mixed with the pork, then sold for human consumption. So, accidental cannibalism to whoever ate it. Yes, I think that would also be classified as forced cannibalism. That's really sad that that's a category. Yeah, and the provincial health authorities did issue a warning after they found this out. They, you know, 
get rid of all your yeah get rid of all your ground pork yeah and it is really good argument for vegans and vegetarians (laughs) yeah yeah it is like don't Um, eat meat because it could have humans in it you never know I'm sure that's been used I'm sure some Vancouver specific vegans have used it too because I feel like it'd be more known there I mean I'm fairly familiar with it but I feel like especially in that area it'd be pretty easy to be like well you know this guy this fucked up guy really liked pigs and fucking with people yep am I allowed to swear pardon am I allowed to swear oh yeah okay I'm talking about him selling human meat for human consumption you're good good fucking point eh (laughs) oh fuck yeah bud (laughs) so I'm gonna tell you about the search for evidence and the evidence they had and kind of how that all unfolded so on February 6th 2002 police received a tip to search his farm for illegal firearms and while searching they found personal items belonging to several local missing women which led them to doing a much more thorough search which turned up suspicious stains and bones Oh, and I'm guessing they weren't pig bones. Well, they don't, I mean, at this point, they don't know that yet. But certainly in spots where you wouldn't have the pig bones. So because it was so, the property was so large, they had to divide it into several smaller scenes. Mm -hmm. So the trailer he was living in was scene A, and investigators swabbed, 440 stains for DNA. I'm gonna actually hope that those were just blood. Yeah. (laughs) Which is just fucking nasty. Trailers are not that big. Like, that's so fucking nasty. Mm -hmm. And obviously some of these samples, I'm sure you could have guessed, had DNA that matched missing women. The slaughterhouse was scene B. And they had to take all the equipment and everything, swab, test, everything to determine if it's pig's blood or human's blood, which would have been such a long process. Such an extensive job because this is stuff that is obviously meant for it. So it's all these so many different tools that would be used. So the first. Official human remains were found in scene D, which was just another building. We had a few different buildings. So inside a freezer, there were two buckets, and each bucket contained a head, two feet, and two hands. Why? Why are the extremities? Where'd the rest of them go? Probably to the pigs. Oh. And one of the heads was actually cut in half and had a bullet hole in the back. What the fuck? And then they found another bucket with a head, hands, and feet found in a different building next to the slaughterhouse. They also just kind of found some bones around the property. 
yeah, a human jaw containing some teeth was found while raking through the dirt by a barn, an older barn. Part of a human jaw was just found in the ground. I'm not too sure. I think digging they found it. Uh, and their jaw hit the floor. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> It was right there. <laughs> was it though? <laughs> I didn't even have to dig too deep for that one. Oh my god. That's a, there's another one. <laughs> Sorry, back to the murder and stuff. <laughs> they also <laughs> found a rat's nest that had some human hand bones in it. Tasty. Which also just shows how fucking like what scavengers rats are. Yeah, true, yeah. They just take whatever they can get and make nests out of it. Like, I've heard stories about, like, old documents being found in, like, old homes. They find rat nests and find, like, cool documents or pictures and stuff. Because they just grab whatever they can to make their nests. Mm -hmm. Wow. They're like the demonic birds. <laughs> yeah. After finding all this evidence, the forensic team... Uh, broke down the scene into quadrants to excavate since they'd already found some bones in the ground. So they actually used uh, machinery that his brother owned and was on the property. Which is, I find very interesting that that was allowed, like that they were able to use since it was part of the property, but I guess... It was his brother's, and it seems like they kind of had their own sections of the property, and they shared it, but they kind of had their own space. Yeah. So they dug 20, 20 feet per quadrant, and the dirt from each quadrant was taking, taken to the landscaping hoppers on scene, which are a machine, and the hoppers are used to shake dirt through different sized screens. And then the dirt is loaded onto conveyor belt that is mo that was monitored by local university students. So it's kind of like a sifting si uh, situation? Yeah, it's just snazzy mm -hmm. sifting. So this technique with the hoppers and the conveyor belt helped them find another piece of human jaw. And... DNA from a total of 32 missing women and 10 additional unknown women were found on his property. So, basically, DNA from 42 different women, 32 were registered missing, 10 weren't, so they weren't identified right away. On February 22, 2002, he was arrested and charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Only two. Well, hold on. Okay. This is only the beginning, my dear. Oh, on April 2nd, he was charged with three more. On April 9th, there was a 6th, and then a couple days later, a 7th. Then on September 20th, he was charged with four more counts of first-degree murder. So on October 3rd, he was charged with four more, which brought the total to 15 and made it the largest investigation of a serial killer in Canadian history. And I think still to date. 
I don't think there's anybody been anyone with more. Let's keep that as the highest. Yeah. We'll get competitive here. <laughs> but wait, there's more. Always more. So, in 2004, the clothing he was wearing in 1997 when he had the incident with the sex worker he hired... And they stabbed each other, and police got involved. It was finally tested, and the blood of two women was found on the clothing he was wearing that night. Are you kidding me? It's finally tested now. I know. May 26, 2005, he got 12 more charges, which brought it up to 27. And the cost of the investigation is estimated to have been $70 million by the end of 2003. That doesn't include his trial. My mind can't even comprehend that much money. Right? So, after his arrest in 2002, he confessed to his cellmate, who was actually an undercover cop with the Vancouver police... And I actually saw this video. Um, you can, like, it's hard to understand, but there's subtitles. Mm -hmm. And he told this cellmate that he had killed 49 women. And he wanted to kill one more and make it an even 50. And he was upset that he wasn't able to make it an even 50. So, like, he was literally just arrested... And that's his biggest concern, is he didn't get to make it an even number. I would be horrified, too. Yeah. So, I'm going to now tell you um, who all his victims were, and I'll also tell you which count they were. So, of the 27, like... They're not really in any particular order, but anyways. So these are the 27 known victims. So obviously he, like I just said, he said he killed 49, but he was only tied to 27. So first we have Serena Abbotsway, and she was the first count he was charged with. She was born August 20th, 1971. She was age 29 when she disappeared, and her foster mother reported her missing August 22nd, 2001. Mona Lee Wilson was count two. She was born January 13th, 1975, which made her age 26 when she was last seen on the way to a doctor's appointment November 30th, 2001. And I believe that means she didn't make it to the doctor. Yeah. Andrea Josbury was count six. She was born in 1979. She was 22 years old when she was reported missing June 8th, 2001. Brenda Ann Wolfe was count seven. And by count, I mean like the murder charge. Mm -hmm. She was born in 1967. She was age 32 when she was last seen in February 1999, but she was not reported missing until April 25th, 2000, which
which I don't know why exactly, but like, cause there's not a lot of detail on each of these independent women. They've kind of, it seems like the families have wanted to keep it, you know, personal, not anyone's business, which is totally understandable. But from just like his victimology, it mm-hmm. could be, she could have been a drifter or she could have not had family in the area or like, it could have been anything that made it that it took that long to report her missing. I don't know. It could have been normal for her to just not respond. Yeah. Well, and especially at the time, too. Like, if she had... If she wasn't from there and had recently moved there, it wouldn't be that odd to not hear from her for a while. Because at that time, like, cell phones weren't that common. Yeah. They were still backpacks. Yeah. So, Marine Lee Frey was count 16. She was last seen August 1997 and was reported missing December 29th, 1997. Georgina Faith Pappen was count 11. She was last seen January 1999 and reported missing March 2001. So, she wasn't reported missing for quite a while. I guess it's the same kind of case and not really... Yes, and like I said at the beginning, a lot of the victims were sex workers, addicts, homeless, so they kind of, when you live that kind of lifestyle, you usually, especially with the homeless aspect, you kind of come and go, so it's more common for people not to see you for a while. So, yeah, it's like normal, so how, how long are you supposed to wait? To report someone missing if they're normally missing. Well, exactly. And I also don't know either, like, I don't know this for sure, but obviously, as I talked about with the woman who escaped him in 1997, she wasn't taken seriously because of her lifestyle. I don't like to call it a lifestyle because it's like, it's more than that. But because of her situation, she wasn't taken seriously and she wasn't able to move forward with the charges. So I also don't know if part of why it took a while to report these women missing is whoever was reporting them missing might not have been listened to. Good point. Because one yeah, of... Like, well, you're, you're talking about a drug addict who commonly is missing, so I'm not going to even bother looking for them because they'll just show up again. And they're adults. It's not illegal to be missing. You're allowed to, like, it is not unheard of for someone to just completely drop everything and start a new life. And that's, that often comes up when adults go missing in a lot of these true crime cases. It's like, it's hard. And I understand, like, I understand why it's hard for police as well, because it's not illegal to be missing. So they're not breaking any laws. So police's hands are kind of tied until... Um, something concrete like in, until there's proof that something's truly wrong and if this is a person who's known to kind of come and go and not really tell anyone and just like one day they're there and one day they're not sort of thing then it's it's harder for them it's not fair by any means but it unfortunately their hands are tied in a lot of situations like this hard to catch the drift of a drifter. Exactly. So, Jacqueline Michelle McDonnell 
was count three. She was aged 23 when she was last seen in January 1999. Diane Rosemary Rock was count four. She was born September 2nd, 1967. She was aged 34 when she was last seen October 19th, 2001. And she was reported missing two months later in December 2001. Heather Kathleen Bottomley was count five. She was born August 17, 1973, and she was aged 27 when she was reported missing April 17, 2001. Jennifer Lynn Firminger was count eight, and she was last seen in 1999. Helen May Hallmark was count nine, last seen August 1997. Patricia Rose Johnson was count 10, last seen March 2001. Heather Chinook, count 12, age 30 when she was last seen in April 2001. Huh. Tanya Holyuk, count 13, and she was 23 when she was last seen in October 1996. Sherry Irving was count 14, and she was 24 years old when she was last seen in 1997. Igna Monique Hall was count 15, and she was 46 years old when she was last seen February 1998. Tiffany Drew was count 17, and she was last seen December 1999. Sarah DeVry was count 18, last seen April 1998. Cynthia Felix was count 19, last seen December 1997. Angela Rebecca Jardin was count 20. She was last seen November 20th, 1998, between 3.30 and 4 p.m. at a rally in Oppenheimer Park in East Vancouver. That's so specific. So specific. So specific to also, like, no one have seen anything. Yeah, if they know that, that she was going to be... if she, They knew that they were there at that certain time. Yeah. They not see them not be there anymore. And at a rally, so lots of people around. It's probably a um, bystander situation. Yeah, it was probably just, yeah, someone recognized her photo or something and said, yeah, I saw her there. Huh. Yeah, it could have just been that. Diana Melnick was count 21, and she was last seen in December 1995, which I think is the earliest one I've said so far. Yeah, sounds like it. And then there was a Jane Doe, who was count 22, and unfortunately her charge was lift lifted March 2nd, 2006, because, quote, the court as drawn fails to meet the minimal requirements set out in Section 581 of the Criminal Code. Accordingly, it must be quashed, unquote. And that's Justice Williams. So, really sad. They didn't identify this woman, and they weren't really able to get her justice. I mean, they tied her murder to him, but... They weren't, he wasn't charged with her murder because of lack of evidence. Mm 
which probably partially also stemmed from not knowing who she was. Wow. Deb and as far as I know, she's never been identified, which is really sad. That's horrible. Deborah Lynn Jones was count twenty three and she was last seen December two thousand. Wendy Crawford was count twenty four and she was last seen December nineteen ninety nine. Carrie Kosky, count 25, and last seen January 1998. Andrea Faye Borhaven was count 26, and she was last seen March 1997. Kara Louise Ellis, who also went by the name Nikki Trimble, was count 27, and she was born April 13, 1971. And she was 25 years old when she was last seen in 1996. And she was reported missing October 2002. I, I might be biased because I'm born in 1999, but it felt like 1999 and 2001 were his most active years. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of 97 as well. I think just 97 to 2001, he was more active. But there was a little bit before and after. Like, a little bit in 95 and 6, and a little bit in 2001. Tipping his toes in and then drying them off. So he has also been implicated in the murders of a couple other women. Hasn't actually been charged with them, but I'll mention them as well. So there's Mary Ann Clark, who also went by Nancy Greek, and she was 25 years old when she disappeared in August of 1991. Yvonne Mary Bowen, who sometimes went by Yvonne England, was born November 30th, 1967. She was last seen March 16th, 2001, and was reported missing March 21st. Dawn Teresa Cray was reported missing in 2000, and there's actually a documentary about her, and it's specifically, she was indigenous, so it's a specifically a Missing, Murdered, and Indigenous Women and Girls documentary that's about her called Finding Dawn. Aww. And he's also been implicated in the murder of two more Jane Does. So it kind of starts to go uphill from here, I guess, because now we're going to talk about the trial. Finally. Yes. A preliminary inquiry was held in 2003. And the testimony that took place in that inquiry was covered by a publication ban until 2010. Wow. A stutter, uh, who's the woman who was assaulted in 97 who got away from him, um, her assault was used as evidence and she testified at this inquiry. Good for her. Yeah. Especially... Good for her, like, after they dropped her charges and kind of rejected her, that she went, no, I'm still going to fight for this. She's like, mm, it's my time to be heard, so fuck all you. <laughs> so his actual trial began, began January 30th, 2006, in New Westminster, and it was seen by the Supreme Court of British Columbia. And he... Of course, pled not guilty to all 27 charges of first-degree murder. And it took 
almost all of 2006 to decide what evidence was going to be admitted in court. And on March 2nd is when Justice James William rejected the Jane Doe count. On August 9th, Justice Williams severed the chargers into two groups. So one was a group of six counts, and the other was the remaining 20. One. What? 21. No, because he rejected the Jane Doe one. She was 27. So now oh. we're down to 26. So the trial continued on the group of six. The group of 20 could have been heard in a separate trial, but they were stayed on August 4th, 2010, which just means we're not going to proceed, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they can't in the future, I believe. But I think it would still be possible to, they just decided not to. Okay. And so, because of the publication ban, the details of the decision aren't publicly available. So while the publication ban is up on like the the preliminary hearing and stuff like that, we really don't know exactly why the charges were stayed. But the judge who severed them explained that trying all 26 would put an unreasonable burden on the jury because the trial could last up to two years. And having that many increases the chances of a mistrial. Because the, the more charges, the more murders, the more stories for the defense to poke holes in, and the more likely that it'll fly. And he also said that the six counts he chose had, quote, material different evidence from the other 20. So I would assume that means there was stronger evidence for these six than the other 20. Makes sense. The date for the trial was originally set to start January 8th, 2007, but was later postponed to January 22nd. So the six women whose murders he faced first-degree murder charges for were Maureen Frey, Serena Abbotsway, Georgina Paffin, Andrea Josbury, Brenda Wolf, and Mona Wilson. And then by February 20, 20th, 2007, the following information had all been presented in court. So, lab staff testified that about 80 unidentified DNA profiles have been detected on the evidence, roughly half male, half female, which sounds super horrifying at first, like maybe there was male victims as well. But he did also host a lot of parties at his house, so so there could be some DNA linked to stuff like that, to him having people over. Like, even just having someone over in your house, their DNA can left get left behind just if they sit in your house for an hour. Yeah, point. A videotape of Picton's friend Scott Chubb was played, where Chubb said Picton had told him a good way to ki- kill a female heroin addict was to inject her with windshield washer fluid. What the fuck? That's so fucked up. Yeah, and I don't know how much true crime stuff you watch, but um, windshield washer fluid 
is used an alarmingly alarming amount of times. Like a lot of people use it to poison their partners. And it's like one of those things that you hear about a lot. It's really weird. I'm I'm used to hearing about cyanide poisoning. That too, yeah. And arsenic. Mm-hmm. I really wonder if I can smell cyanide. I, I know, know me I too. Also don't want to know. I know. I always every time it comes up I'm like, hmm, I wonder if I can know. I wanna safely snip it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and I love the stories, too, where it's like they can't figure out what happened, and then they're doing an autopsy, and then the one tech goes, huh, that smells like almonds. Did anyone bring almonds into the autopsy room? Yeah. (laughs) So uh, another tape was played in which uh, another friend of his named Andrew Bellwood said Picton mentioned to him killing sex workers by handcuffing and strangling them, then bleeding and gutting them before feeding them to the pigs. Awesome. And photos of the contents of a garbage can found in his slaughterhouse were shown, and the garbage can contained some of Mona Wilson's remains. So, yeah, that was all early on in the trial. But there's more, of course. So, some more physical evidence that was revealed during the trial was um, some skulls that were cut in half with hands and feet stuffed inside them. Why? Yeah, he really had a thing for keeping heads and hands and feet together. And sometimes bodies will be found, like, without hands, feet, and heads, so they can't be identified. But he wasn't... But then you kept the hands and head and everything to identify them. And he fed them to his pigs. It's not like he was necessarily disposing of these bodies on the roadside. Or maybe these women he was. I don't know. We don't know specifically what happened to which women. We just know many were fed to pigs. But maybe he did other things as well. We don't know. He took uh, having your foot in your mouth to the to a whole other level. Oh my good God. <laughs> when I get uncomfortable about topics, I make jokes. No, it's okay. It's okay. I nervous laugh too, so it's okay. Bad jokes too. Exactly. Some of the other evidence was also um, remains of one victim, which had been stuffed in a garbage bag, and her bloodstained clothes found in his trailer. Part of a jawbone and teeth found in the slaughterhouse as well as also the evidence of all the other remains I have mentioned up to this point. Boxes of, I don't know, gun language, so I don't know if I'm saying this right, <laughs> but boxes of .357 Magnum handgun ammunition, night vision goggles, two pairs of fake fur-lined handcuffs, Oh. I guess to handcuff them with, but usually those are pretty good, easy to get out of, which I guess is how, um, but I guess that is how the woman got out of them in 97, because they were fakey sex store handcuffs, which aren't meant to actually trap you, they're just meant for the illusion. It's almost like he wanted to get caught. 
Mm-hmm. Or he just knew they weren't going to do anything. Oh, yeah, that's a good point, because his victims always had that, a bunch of stuff going against them. Mm-hmm. Well, and he got away with this for so many years. Like, he started in 94 or 95, and he wasn't arrested till 2002. And they also found a syringe with three millimeters of blue liquid inside. Don't drink the blue Kool-Aid. Which, which I don't know why they didn't say what the blue liquid was, but I would assume it's the windshield washer fluid. That would make sense, yeah. They also found some Spanish fly aphrodisiac, which I googled what it is for you. Okay. So, it's made from a Spanish fly, which is an emerald green beetle in the blister beetle family, and used often by traditional apothecaries and is used as an aphrodisiac. So, according to its manufacturers, it is a 100% natural and herbal female aphrodisiac, which leads to, quote, a volcanic eruption of ultimate passion and a feeling of intense sexual desire and lust, end quote. That's a quote I never thought I'd have to hear. I know. I seriously considered not reading it, but I felt like I should, just to kind of lighten it a little. Yeah. So they found some of that, and a twenty-two caliber revolver with a dildo attached to the end, like where the bullet comes out of, which had one round fired from it. Oh my god, are you fucking kidding me? So he claimed the dildo was attached to be a makeshift silencer. Sounds like a fucked up torture device. Yeah, it really does. And it did have his DNA and one of the victim's DNA on it. So he says it was to be a silencer, but, like, we don't know for sure. Yeah, we don't know for sure how he used it. We just know that's what he said. In October 2007, a juror was accused of having made up her mind already that Picton was innocent, which is a big problem for sure. Uh, like, part of jury selection is making sure they don't come in with biases, and obviously this is a good chunk of the way into the trial, but still. But the the judge questioned her extensively, and she denied it, and Justice Williams ruled she could stay on the trial, since it they couldn't prove that she felt this way, it was just like a rumor. True, yeah, hearsay. Yeah, so just, yeah, like she could just have made a comment about how compelling the evidence was, or it could have just been a red herring that was thrown in there to buy him time. Because we also don't know, like, it doesn't say who accused her of this. True, yeah, it could have been someone with a prejudice towards, like, wanting him to be innocent. Mm-hmm. So on December 6, 2007... Early in the day, the jury had submitted a written question to Justice Williams, which said, quote, 
Are we able to say yes if we infer the accused acted indirectly? End quote. So he suspended the deliberations to clarify. So what they meant was, so he's being charged with first degree murder. So they want to know, can we find him guilty but it not be first degree murder? Like, does it have to be first degree murder? Or can we find him guilty of another degree? So on December 9th, 2007, the jury returned their verdict. And it's kind of like a good and a bad. Oh, joy. So he was found not guilty on six counts of first-degree murder. But he was found guilty on six counts of second-degree murder. What's the difference? So, I'm glad you asked. I really am. So, the difference is essentially... First degree murder is when you kill someone and you plan to. So if I text you and I'm like, hey, Emma, you should come over next weekend and hang out. And I don't actually want to hang out. I'm planning on killing you. I don't think I'm ever going to come over to your house. (laughs) (laughs) I just need to use an example that's like not (laughs) people's names who aren't involved. So that basically... First degree murder would be him picking these women up and bringing them back to his place, intending on killing them. Second degree means that he didn't bring them home to kill them, but once he brought them home, he decided he was going to. So, first degree is when you plan it ahead of time. Second degree is when you mean to kill them, but you don't plan on it ahead of time. Okay, well, it sounds like he came into this situation with murder on the mind, so I'm not sure what they're on about. It's all about evidence, though. And that's the hard part, right, about the justice system, is because there's no way to tell 100% to figure out what the truth is unless someone's caught in the act of something, and even then, it still can be hard. So it's all about what you can prove. Like, there's plenty of cold cases where... Like, the police departments are, like, 90% sure they know who it was, or they're 100% sure they know who it was, but they can't prove it, so they can't charge them. Because if you charge someone and then they're found not guilty, you can never charge them again. So if you charge someone with first-degree murder or any, any degree of murder, if you charge someone with murder and they're found not guilty, which... For the record, also, it's not actually not guilty. It's not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So, to be found not guilty, the defense just has to make you doubt it. True. Make you not 100% convinced. So that's the thing, is they probably... There's probably enough evidence that they couldn't prove that... There's probably just little enough or enough evidence the defense was able to provide that he didn't necessarily go like my god I just it's hard to explain I guess basically just because he added shadow to the doubt yeah and yeah the defense would have just been able to have them doubt themselves enough but I mean 
six counts of second degree murder is still pretty good. It's better than not at all. And then manslaughter, to finish explaining, manslaughter would be um, if you got in a fist fight with someone and then they died of their injuries. Got it. So you didn't mean to kill them, but they died because of something you did. Okay, yeah. Which, in the States, when you hit someone and kill them with your car, it's called vehicular manslaughter. I knew that one. Here, I believe we call it uh, reckless driving resulting in a death. But, yeah, it's that sort of, Yeah, it's when you cause someone's death, but you didn't necessarily mean to. Okay. Or it can't be proven that you meant to. So. Side note. Yeah. You know what I've decided? I don't care if there's a heaven or a hell or anything, but I've decided that as long as I find out answers to all these, like, cold cases and shit, and find the behind-the-scenes information, I'll be fine. So does that mean, like, you want to risk it all to solve all these cases? Or, like, you just hope when you die you get the answer? When I die, I want the answers. So on December 11th, 2007, um, there were 18 victim impact statements read. And I don't know who by. It, I couldn't find who by. I would presume the woman who testified against him in the preliminary hearing who escaped him probably was one of them friends and family of the victims or anyone else who survived him um part of the part of the publication ban that still exists and part of just what kind of generally goes with canadian trials is you don't find out a, as much of these little details as you do in the states like in the states the like news cameras can be in court uh -huh. whereas here it's much more kept not oh, yeah more kept private okay so justice williams sentence picked into life without the possibility of parole for 25 years which i know does not sound like a lot but that is because we are so used to american crime where they can try charge you with a million years this is actually the maximum punishment he's able to give on second degree. I suppose I'll accept it. Yeah, so he charged him as heavily as he is allowed to. Okay. And this is also, fun fact, um, equal to the automatic sentence for first degree murder. So you're, when you're convicted of first degree murder, you're automatically charged with life without the possibility of parole for 25 years. So... If they had found him guilty of first degree murder, he would have gotten the exact same exact same sentence anyways. Okay. And the justice said, quote, Mr. Picton's conduct was murderous and repeatedly so. I cannot know the details, but I know this. What happened to them was senseless and despicable, end quote. Truly. Yep. And I mean it's pretty safe to say he'll never get out anyways. It amazes me that you can kill someone and take a life, and then you could have a life. Like, there is a chance you can get out. Yeah. Not guys like this, but... Yeah. Yeah. Not when it's multiple. Like, the same. Char this is the same charge Paul Bernardo 
got and god i've mentioned him in passing so many times i'm gonna have to just do one about him eventually <laughs> yeah which i will i just keep mentioning him but anyways so i have some more stuff that happened post-conviction so on january 7th 2008 the attorney general wally opal filed an appeal in the british columbia court of appeal and this was against his acquittals of first degree murder charges which is very interesting, like, why would he do that? Yeah. But I'll explain that in a couple points. I have, just have a couple points before then. So, the grounds relate to a number of evidentiary rulings made by the trial judge, certain aspects of the trial judge's jury instructions, and the ruling to sever the charges. So, the stuff he was using was the fact that the charges were severed and evidence that was and wasn't allowed in, and um, the jury being confused. Some relatives of the victims expressed concern about this, uh, concern that the convictions would be jeopardized if the Crown argued that the trial judge has made errors. So a lot of the family, friends and family, got worried that this meant it was going to have to be revisited and then maybe they would lose. Opposition critic Leonard King criticized the Attorney General for not briefing the families in advance, which Opal later apologized for. So, now I'll tell you why he did this. So, he said the appeal was filed for strategic reasons and anticipation of an appeal by the defense. So, their logic was that if Picton appeals his convictions, and if it's allowed, resulting in a new trial... The prosecution will want to hold that new trial on the original 26 charges of first-degree murder, which they wouldn't have been able to do unless they appealed this. They were worried that he was going to appeal, which most people do, and they were worried that if he was granted this appeal and then he was granted a new trial, that it would get wishy-washy with only the six and... Because there were so many more, they felt it should have been all of them. So this was just a precautionary measure, basically, on the off chance that he did get a new trial. So they would be able to revisit and charge with charge him with more or all 26. Okay. On January 9th, 2008, his lawyers filed a notice of appeal. And they were seeking a new trial. They alleged that the trial judge erred in various areas, including the main charge to the jury, so saying first degree, similar fact, evidence, and Picton's statements to police. On June 25, 2009, the British Columbia Court of Appeal issued its decisions, and some parts were not publicly released because of publication bans still in effect. But they dismissed the appeal by a two-to-one majority. So, someone was for it. That's horrifying. Mm-hmm. They allowed the Crown to appeal, finding that the trial judge erred in excluding some, some evidence and in severing the 26 counts into a group of 20 and 6. So, they felt there was some evidence that he didn't allow in that they think should have. But the order resulting from this finding was stayed, so the conviction on the six counts of second degree would not be set aside. So, basically they sided with the Attorney General, but 
didn't change anything. Awesome. On June 26, 2009, Picton's lawyer confirmed they would be exercising his right to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada, and the appeal was based on the dissonant in the B.C. Court of Appeal. What does that word mean? Well, I will tell you in a hot fucking second. And now, it does sound absolutely awful that he keeps appealing and keeps appealing, but it is his right. It is how it works, so... It's fun how this man who murdered this many people got so many rights to do things that he wants to do, and oh, Jane Doe didn't get the right to count. Or all the other 22... Yeah, the 22 victims that were never officially tied to him. Mm-hmm. So, dissonant means the expression or holding of opinions at variance with those previously commonly or officially held. So... So going against the status quo. Um, I think it's just about opinions. Okay. So, the appeal in June 26, 2009 was, on, was just based on the opinion of the BC Court of Appeal. On November 26, 2009, the Supreme Court of Canada granted this application for leave of appeal. The effect of this was to broaden the scope of Picton's appeal, allowing him to raise arguments that have since oh that were rejected of the BC Court of Appeal. So, they weren't accepting his appeal, but they were wanting to hear more, basically. On July 30th, 2010, the Supreme Court of Canada rendered its decision dismissing Picton's appeal and confirming his convictions. So the argument that he should be granted a new trial was unanimously rejected by the judges. So they all said, no fucking way, he's not getting a new trial. Good. Mm-hmm. At least they can agree on that. Yes. And children of... Some of the victims filed a civil lawsuit in May 2013 against the Vancouver Police Department and the RCMP and Crown for failing to protect the victims. Because, again, like, these women should have been safe. Everyone should be safe. And they were reported missing, and some of them weren't reported missing for a while. What in what we can assume is related to... I personally assume it's not, I'm not saying this was said anywhere, but I personally assume partly due to, like we were saying before, with, well, it's not illegal to be missing, and with the life they, these women live, the police didn't want to, didn't want to look for them. Prejudice and circumstance. Yeah. So, the settlement, a settlement was reached in March 2014, and each child was compensated $50,000 without an admission of liability. Awesome. That makes everything better. So they went, here's your money, now shut the fuck up. We didn't do anything wrong. Which is disgusting. I know, I can't get the money. Absolutely disgusting. It's not that hard to go, yeah, you know what? You're right. We fucked up. Here's $50,000. Like, why, what is the point of including the admission with not including an admission of liability. Like, you're already accepting that they have a case against you if you're given the money. But, anyhow... 
I just have a few more little details for you. So after he was arrested, a woman named Lynn Ellingson came forward. She claimed to have seen Picton skinning a woman who was hanging from a meat hook once. Oh my god. She didn't tell anyone until then because she was afraid for her life. And she said that he actually blackmailed her about the incident. So he noticed that she noticed. Yeah, he knew that she saw him, so he blackmailed her. That's horrifying. Mm-hmm. And she was scared for her life, so she didn't tell until after he was in custody. You, you would feel a lot sa more safe when they're behind bars being like, hey, so just so you know. Yeah, exactly. Same. So Constable Lorimer Shenhair, um, who was... Part of the team assigned to this case um, actually found out while investigating that there was a call made to Vancouver police that he should be looked into for these missing women's cases years before. Oh my god. And this constable had actually been kind of looking into it, but he couldn't get sufficient police resources and intention at and attention until 2002. So it sounds like this constable was trying, but no one was listening to him. No one was giving support. Mm -hmm. And he actually later went on to write a book in 2015 about the whole shebang. Everyone's always writing a book. I know. <laughs> I know, I might, it's kind of... Yeah. Like, you're about to be like, I'm gonna write a book too. I was like, what the fuck happened to you? <laughs> yeah. So last one, in August 2006, 27-year-old Thomas Laudemy from Fremont, California, claimed that he received letters from Picton in response to ones he had sent. So he sent letters to Picton first, and Picton answered him. Oh. And in these letters... Thomas claimed to be Maya Barnett, a woman down on her luck. And in the letters, Picton allegedly speaks with concern about the expense of the investigation, asserts his innocence, quotes and refers to the Bible, praises the trial judge, and responds in details to fictional information in Laudemy's letters. And now these letters have never been confirmed because he claims he doesn't have them anymore. So, oh, we don't know. We don't know if that's true or not. It could just be bullshit. Most of the time is people just wanting attention and like to get into the news. Yeah, exactly. So, he is still alive. He is... 71 years old now. Considering all the stupid shit he's done to humans, I hope that he dies from skin cancer. Why skin cancer specifically? He skinned someone. Oh, yeah, okay. And okay. it's a lengthy, long, torturous thing. So, he's currently being held in a federal maximum security prison in Quebec. Wow, he's closer to us than, than I thought. 
but it's maximum security and he's 71 years old. And it doesn't seem like he was ever much of a big guy either. Because it sounds like he definitely used um, these women's addictions to his advantage. And the party environment as well. So even if they weren't necessarily addicted, but they knew he hosted parties, he could have brought them home claiming that. Mm-hmm. And then gave them drugs and alcohol and... Because he didn't seem like a big guy, but he also worked for a butcher and he slaughtered pigs so he would know how to... He would know all the right moves. Yeah. He knew how to play his cards, that's for freaking sure. So, that's pretty much it. Um, he'll, he'll never get out of jail. There, obviously, are concerns always when people are charged with something like this, with, um... Like, without the possibility of parole for 25 years. But the emphasis is on possibility. That just means for 25 years they can't apply. Mm-hmm. So. Actually. And how much longer is left on that 25 years? Well, let's see. Because he probably won't even live past that. No, likely not. Um, so he won't be able to apply for parole until 2032. And he will, if he's still alive at that time, which is possible, it is only less than 15 years away, he'd be 83. So he, he's 72 this year, he just hasn't turned 70. Okay, gotcha. Um, yeah, so he'd be 83, so... Because he will automatically they they do automatically get a parole hearing like Bernardo just had one recently um and people were outraged but it's standard they automatically get one but that doesn't mean they're going to get parole they just part of our system means after the 25 years are up then it's the parole board yeah the parole board hears it and then decides but he won't get out the only way he would the only way guys like that ever get out is, like, compassionate release or something like that. Like, if they don't want to pay to take care of them anymore. But that doesn't really happen in Canada much. That's more of a states thing. I wouldn't want to take care of them either. <laughs> no. I was hoping to get more information about the victims, but I understand why it's more low-key. The families might have requested that. I just hope that these Jane Doe's can be identified. Uh-huh. Especially the one that he was for sure tied to. Like, there were a couple others that weren't for sure tied to him, but the woman who's who he definitely murdered that isn't identified, I really hope that they can identify her. And yeah, they might. That's what she deserves. Mm-hmm. They might. You never know, like, with the advances in DNA technology... Who knows? Even what we have available now, they might be able to. If choosing to test it, it's just the testing isn't cheap. So, with him already being in prison, unfortunately, it's not super likely. Unless someone can come forward and pays for it or something like that. Or they get another lead on who she might be. It's just really sad that there's a family member 
or close friend out there somewhere who doesn't know what happened to her. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess it's not really about whoever died. It's more so about the living that have to grieve along with them. Well, exactly. Like, just like... You know, if you need to grieve. Just like funerals aren't really for the person who died. It's for the people who are left behind to move on. So, like all these women... The other 20 women who he wasn't tried and convicted of, it sucks a lot, but at least they, you know, at least they know it was him, whereas there's these 22 other women, well, 23 if you count the Jane Doe, that we just don't know who they were, because he claimed to kill 49, only 26 were identified. Uh-huh. So who were these other women? We don't know. We might never know. Unless they find, like... Because you were saying something about they found some personal belongings. Yes, and they found some DNA, too, that wasn't identified. But, again, like, with him already being in, pri- in prison, the unfortunate side of the fact that he's already in prison is that they probably won't bother testing it again. Because it, it's not cheap, mm-hmm. so it's shitty, but it's because of the cost. It's not because of not caring. It's because of the cost and the budgeting, and we have other cases that are relevant that don't aren't by seven-year-olds in prison. From the, That's like... Close enough. Like, it's... It's very unfortunate, but I can see both sides, right? Like, as a family, it's like, no, you need to test this. We need to know, but there's budgets, and within the budgets, it's also you only get to spend... Like, within the budgets, it's not just, like, you get this much money for the whole department. It's, like, you get this much for this section and this much for this section. And there's going to be more recent and I don't want to say relevant but cases that they're trying to solve right now that they're going to want to use those resources for yeah they have to allocate it to the more pressing matters I suppose one with people who aren't currently in jail yes exactly and use it to catch someone who isn't in jail but you never know like as technology advances it also might lower costs and maybe 10, 20 years from now, costs will be lower and they'll go, you know what, why don't we try to just identify all these women and just... Because there could also be... Like, I don't know for sure, but there's probably women who have been missing from that area since the time of his murders, but weren't tied to him. That could probably be his victims, and we just don't know because of lack of evidence. So we just have to hope for the future. Or, you know, one of us can die and figure out the answer and then <laughs> let the other know through some sort of code. Yeah, I like your... I like your theory that we find out the answer to everything when we die. Otherwise it sounds so boring to die. Yeah. Like, okay. why would you, you know? <laughs> yes, I think I'm going to tell myself that now to make me feel better about things. It's something I've had to tell myself, because otherwise I just 
get into real bad thought spirals of, oh my god, I'm going to die. But at least that's why I'm kind of excited for it, to be like, one day I'm going to die. But I'll find out all this shit that I used to be obsessed with when I was younger. Yeah. And probably will be for the rest of my life. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Disturbed Minds. Please like and subscribe wherever you listen, and don't forget to follow the show on Instagram for show details and more at Disturbed Minds Pod. That's D I S T U R B E D M I N D S P O D.